0: Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. There's a place in the darkness that I used to cling to that presses harsh hope against time. In the absence of martyrs, there's a presence of thieves that only seek to rob me blind. They steal away any sense of peace. Though I'm a king, I'm a king on my knees. And I know that they're wrong when they say that I'm strong and darkness covers me. There's ghosts from my past who own more of my soul than I thought I had given away. They linger in closets and under my bed and in pictures less proudly displayed. A great fool in my life I have been, have squandered till pallid and thin, hung my head in shame and refused to take blame for the darkness I know I've let win. This message today is for anybody who's ever wrestled with guilt, ever wrestled with shame, ever wrestled with heaviness, brokenness, unworthiness, Jesus in the scriptures has a very special place in his heart for you. It seems that the most broken, the most unworthy, the most undeserving are the ones he was most fascinated with, the most desiresome to reach, the ones that he moved heaven and earth to get to, to speak and to tell stories about so if you have your Bibles open up to Luke chapter 18 if you need a Bible, you can lift your hand right now. Someone will run one over to you. We made a decision a long time ago that we're just going to put the references on the screen because we want everyone to be able to look into the text for themselves. I, I think, uh, I was thinking about this this morning. I had a dream the other night. I'm going to tell you about this weird dream. Um, I had a dream that one day when we weren't here, I didn't tell anybody on staff about this dream. It really freaked me out that somebody came in. They snuck in and they ripped out all the brick and they put in Ellie screens and holograms and smoke and lasers and you know and all the stuff that like church culture has kind of that pendulum has moved towards and what we decided a while ago is like we're just gonna be simple Right? Nothing against all that stuff, but I just feel like, man, I just want the simplicity of what I read about in the book of Acts. You know, we get together, we sing songs to Jesus, we look at the Bible together, we actually open it, we bring Bibles, we stare at this book, and, uh, and we talk about what he says, and then we go do it, right? The simplicity of that. And so in this dream, somebody had done all this stuff and it was like, what happened? I couldn't figure out whose decision this was. It was like, who replaced all these things while I was gone? In the dream, Paul, I didn't tell you that, I was like, where's Paul Alverson? Like, does anybody know where Paul, and they were like, he's fifth row, you know, because there were rows, like a movie. And I went and I found him and I was like, who did this? And he was like, I thought you did, you know. And then I woke up and was like, thank God. It was just a dream. What we've attempted to create here is so different than that we just want it to be simple we want to look at this book we want to talk about what it says and we want to move on from that so if you need an actual book an actual Bible the references will be on the screen if you're watching at home special greeting to you as well I think our views are going up because the weather is getting so bad right? there's so many of you who have chosen to stay in and there's there's no uh, criticism on that but so many of you are here this morning which is amazing you braved the elements to be here so thankful. I'm not going to say any names, but I saw a dad a minute ago whose wife is out of town, and he had to bring the kids, and he made it. I was like, man, I would have just been like, you know what, kids, we're watching online this week, but he's in the room. So, man, that's amazing. That's amazing. We decided a couple of weeks ago that we were going to start looking at the parables, these stories that Jesus told. We're going to search them for meaning for our own lives, and that's what we're going to do This morning, this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, we're gonna read it and then we're gonna unpack it together. It says this To some who were confident of their own righteousness, don't you love when a story starts that way? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted Lord Jesus as we look at your word right now first I want to thank you for preserving your actual words for us for 2000 years we get to this morning look at a miracle look at the miracle that your words have been contained for us for 2,000 years so that we can sit in a rainy, cold Myrtle Beach church building and talk about these words. So any distractions that we brought with us, we pray that those would stay outside this room and that uh, that you'd bless our, our investment this morning, that you'd help us to see something we've never seen before, that you teach us we love you Jesus we pray these things in your name amen a few years back I had an opportunity to see a stand-up comedian named Jim Gaffigan who you guys might know he's kind of a clean comedian like his uh his big thing that kinda of made him a big thing was like this big thing that he did on Hot Pockets right all these jokes about Hot Pockets which I found relatable, because I've eaten a few Hot Pockets in my day, and he talks about the scalding pizza on the inside, where you're like, this is going to leave the roof of my mouth, like, you know, like, melting, right? You eat lava. You know, he was a great comedian on this, this, this tour that I saw him on. A friend invited me, and then late, earlier this week, somebody sent me a link to a podcast where he was a guest of Joe Rogan's. Now, I don't listen to a lot of Joe Rogan, right, but I was listening to this particular conversation because I thought, well, this will be interesting uh, because, you know, I just felt like kind of a connection because I had seen him before live and they were talking about something that you wouldn't expect two comedians to talk about. They were talking about, I remember Jim asked Joe, he goes, what do you think that the drive people possess comes from? They were talking about celebrities. It was in the context of this discussion about celebrities. He's like, when these actors who have all these trophies at home, when they go on to try to star in another film to get another trophy, right? these musicians who have earned Grammys before, and they make another record in, in hopes of earning another Grammy. He's like, where does that come from? What is this insatiable urge that's inspiring or motivating all of this. And Joe, without batting an eye, said, money. People, they're in, they're in search of money. They want more money. That's an urge, an appetite that you can never fully, finally satisfy. And he turned to Jim, and he goes, what do you think? And Jim goes, I disagree. He said, I used to think it was money. What I've learned, or what I think is actually the case, is it's something much more sinister. It's actually Ego. There's this ego inside of us that's always moving, always searching, always hoping for more, wanting more, because something in us knows that we are not actually finally enough within ourselves. And so we search for something external to us that can give us value, that can give us meaning. The only way to ever actually be enough is to actually reach outside of ourselves to take hold of something external that makes us feel like we're enough. And this is actually what the Bible teaches. You guys probably know this, but at the beginning of time, the Bible says we were plugged into our creator for our identity, for our value, right? And I think this is worth considering. It's worth looking at Adam and Eve and their connection with God. These are the last two human beings, after all, who had a healthy connection with God before the fall. All of us since then have had kind of a jacked up connection, right? These guys were created in perfection. They were created to be tied in to their creator. And they, they, they had his glory as something that was shining into them. They probably never wrestled with self-doubt, or low self-esteem because they had God. And just as a plant gets its nutrients from the sun, we had God's glory shining on us. Adam and Eve were tied to their creator for, for their identity, for their value. Can you, can you imagine what it must have felt like in your soul to have God's glory shining through you? With that much glory, that much of God shining through you, you'd never have a self-defeating thought. You'd never be worried. You'd never have an other person bashing thought. You'd have no need of approval because you would have God's approval. I think this is why, by the way, Moses describes what life was like before the fall. In Genesis chapter 2, you guys are going to think I'm silly for mentioning this, but I promise you, just hang with me. There's a point. In a very short amount of verses, a very short passage of the description of what life was like before the fall, Moses says five times that the main characteristic for people was that we were naked and didn't care right? That was the main thing. He's like, clothes came later, right? There was no shame. There was no embarrassment. He mentions this over and over and over and over and over, five times in a very short passage. Why in the world mention this so much? And I think it's because Moses wants us to see something, that the very first thing that happens after sin is invited into the picture after our connection with God gets broken, is that we realize our approval, our identity, our meaning, our security is also broken. And the first result of that disconnect is shame. Nakedness. They finally noticed they were naked. They'd been naked the whole time. They had just never noticed before. Sin creeps into the picture. We get disconnected from God, and all of a sudden... Everything that we get our glory from, our security, our understanding of value and purpose and identity, and our feeling of rightness with with God from our Maker, that gets disconnected. And that relationship was so strong prior and so pure that Adam and Eve felt no insecurity whatsoever. And, And the first thing that happens when it's broken, they know it instantly. They feel shame, they feel embarrassment. If men and women are so wired to receive our glory from something outside of ourselves, something external to themselves, if God's presence was giving us our feeling of fulfillment, then when that relationship is broken, wouldn't we be pining eternally for something to give us that significance again? Doesn't this help us make sense of that eternal search we see people on? looking for anything they can plug into to try to give meaning to themselves again. If I can just plug into this, or if I can plug into this, and some of those things last for a minute or two, but they never fully finally last, right? There's this ache inside of us that can never be satisfied. This is what Jesus is describing in this story. He's setting up for us two different approaches, with how to get that fix, how to get that need met, how to get that feeling of rightness back that we had with God. The first, if you're taking notes, you can jot down, is what we'll call an outside-in approach. I'll unpack that more in a minute. And then the opposite, of course, is the inside-out approach. The Pharisee in this story, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, the Pharisee in the story practices or symbolizes an outside-in approach And the tax collector in this story, we'll talk about that too. Can you tell I'm excited? The tax collector will represent an inside. approach we said a couple of weeks ago we want to talk about parables right we want to talk about stories we want to talk about what Jesus said these symbols these images that he gave people during his earthly ministry we also said that the goal of a parable is not to tell you how to live better if you grew up in Sunday school uh, with the little lady in the felt board right and she said these are earthly stories with heavenly meanings it's like well kinda you know that's part of it but the goal wasn't to tell you to live better with these stories the goal was to tell you what Jesus kingdom is like it's a description of life inside of the new kingdom we said last week when Jesus would roll into town when the J train would come to a town right they would put on a three-part show first thing miracle BAM somebody gets healed something happens the crowds come out and Jesus goes oh this is a great opportunity to announce part two of my message kingdom of God has come the kingdom of God is here Evidenced by the fact I just healed a dude, right? And then part three of his three-part message when he would roll into a town was to teach what the kingdom of God is like. He goes, I'm planting a new kingdom right in the middle of this dead, messed up, broken one. That's what I'm doing here and now, this this kingdom of God idea was very fresh on the minds of the Jewish audience that Jesus spoke it to. This first-century world, this first-century audience, the Jewish people thought they had been called by God to be their own kingdom, to be their own nation, to be their own people. They had been hand-selected by God as a special country. And there's a problem; they're living in captivity to Rome. You got these Romans everywhere, and they're sort of in charge, and the Jews were like, man, these guys should not be calling the shots. We should be our own sovereign nation. And one day, the text tells us in the Bible, God's going to send someone called the Messiah, and he was going to kick out this foreign occupation, or so they thought. So when they thought of the kingdom of God, they were looking back to the glory days of Solomon, to the glory days of David, when they were their own sovereign nation. And Messiah, when he came, would be the one who would restore that. They had kind of a distorted view of what the Messiah would be and what the kingdom of God would be. Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm not planting a physical kingdom. It will be one day, like you'll actually be able to see it, but mine is spiritual. In this world that's ruled by death and decay and darkness and sin, I'm planting life. I'm planting righteousness I'm gonna have access to you through my Holy Spirit I'm building something new right in the middle of this broken world and then parables these are stories about what it's like when you when you just accept what I'm already doing when you live in light of what I'm already doing. This is what it's like inside my new kingdom and you can choose whether or not to participate. Jesus became so infatuated in his teaching with the kingdom. So many of us think of the church you know, in association with Jesus. Jesus said the word church twice in his teaching. In all four gospels he said the word church twice. He said the word kingdom 90 times. The last 40 days of his ministry he taught almost exclusively on the kingdom I'm planting something new right in the middle of this broken world which begs the question is it still a kingdom if the king is gone Because he did. He he announced the arrival of the kingdom. He goes, "I'm, I'm building a new kingdom here, right? I'm building something fresh and new right in the middle of a broken, messed up world. But then he bounced, right? He dies and he's raised back to life and he goes off into heaven. And you're like, okay, are we still a kingdom without the king here? The answer, of course, is yes. When he was here, that kingdom was mediated through his physical presence. But with him gone, guess what? That kingdom is mediated through us. The church, we are the ones who bring about this new work that Jesus is doing in this world. So, in this story, he's telling us about what life is like inside of this kingdom. When we live in light of what he says, when we participate with what he's already doing. Oh, I'm so excited. Verse nine: To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now we have to remember that this story that Jesus is telling is coming like during the middle of his preaching about the kingdom, and everybody's looking around, going, "Oh, there's a new kingdom. Jesus is starting a new kingdom. I bet I'm on the list of this new kingdom." Right? They start feeling pretty good about themselves. They're like, "Okay, if there's a guest list, I'm in. I'm a shoe in. I got all these great accolades. I got all these great." reasons to be in the kingdom, of course Jesus is going to choose me and Jesus looks around and sees these guys feeling pretty good about themselves and he's like oh, you need a story (laughs) that's the setup for this, he tells them a parable two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector now, you guys know probably if you've grown up in church what a Pharisee is right? these are the religious elite a member of an ancient Jewish sect distinguished by strict observance to the traditional and written law commonly believing themselves to be in a place of moral superiority they look down on people Jesus is using this as an example he goes this guy in this story for my new kingdom he's gonna represent the old kingdom that old kingdom had what we'll call an outside-in approach that I can put all these rules around my heart. I can fence out sin so that my heart doesn't get contaminated by sin. If I can achieve all of these rules, if I can keep all of these rules, then I can have right standing with God. And this tax collector, by the way, can't do any of those things. See, that's, that's the problem with the old kingdom. If you can obey the rules, you feel proud you feel self-righteous. If you can't, you feel humiliated and embarrassed. These are the two diametrically opposed people in the story. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Notice he prays about himself. He's the content of his prayer. Right, he says to God, I thank you, God, I thank you, verse 11 and 12, God, he says God once, and then he says his own name five times, if you're keeping count, which I did. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, (laughs) robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get boy he's pretty thankful for himself he's not praying to god at all is he he's like god i thank you that i'm so awesome when you made me you made someone so awesome and way to go god high five cuz i'm really awesome man this is such a characteristic of that old of that old kingdom the first characteristic we will call And this strategy, this outside-in approach that the Pharisee represents, if you're taking notes, write down the word externalization. Externalization. His understanding of sin and virtue is completely external. It's focused on behavior. It's stuff out there. It isn't looking at inside character. He doesn't go, thank you that I'm growing in my gentleness and in my patience and in my kindness and in my generosity. He goes, thank you that I'm so awesome. I don't perform actions that bad people perform, like robbing and cheating. These are all external actions that I avoid. He is completely externally focused. His understanding of sin and virtue completely is oriented to external behavior, keeping or breaking the rules, which leads to something else. If you're taking notes, this particular brand, outside in approach, starts as externalization and it leads to separation. This verse here, some translations say that he stood by himself, others say he prayed about himself. You know why? Both of those are correct. There is a purposely ambiguous little Greek uh, preposition here that could mean he prayed about himself, which he does. I'm so awesome. I'm so great. Thank you, God, for making me, right? He prays about himself, but it could also mean that he was separate from everyone. He prayed by himself. He moved away from the crowd. And almost certainly this is on purpose because it means both. He's doing both. He's saying, God, I'm thanking you that I'm so awesome. He prays about, he's the content of his prayer, but almost certainly he moves away from the other people because he's not like them. They're over there, I'm over here. This outside-in approach almost always separates us from people. He's praying about himself and by himself. Separation or separatism always happens like this. If you can see sin, as completely external to yourself, it's something out there to be avoided. And what it fails to recognize is that sin is actually in here, isn't it? It comes from within. But in this outside-in approach, if I see it as out there, then I stay away from it, right? I alienate myself from people who perform sin, and I make myself separate and look what this hap- what this leads to in this prayer this is so interesting it leads to something that i would call preferential it's a big word superiority he slides into his prayer something that's not actually commanded He goes, God, I'm really great at not doing bad things like robbing and cheating and stealing. Let's look at it. He goes, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. So separatism. Robbing, robbers, so I don't do that. Evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth. Of all that I get I want you to see what he does here because he slips it in you could miss it robbing of course is mentioned in Scripture don't do that right it's a command you keep that one doing evil of course is against God's law don't do that adultery of course cheating then look at first 12 I fast twice a week and you go nobody asked you to do that that's not in Scripture right Fasting is a good thing, but it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of just a response to God. Nobody's asking you to do it. He signs up for bonus points that no one else has agreed to. He's like, not only am I better than this guy, but I'm making extra credit. And you're like, what's the extra credit? He's like, I made it up, and then I gave myself credit for it, right? That's what he's doing here. This is what this approach does to us. We start looking down on other people because of matters of conviction, Not matters of things that God has actually asked us to do. And here's what's so dangerous, is I think we do this all the time. Still, without meaning to. We we don't see anywhere in Scripture, I'm just going to give you an example. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where the authors of Scripture tell us how to worship, right? They just say we should worship, we should sing. And I've noticed over that some people, they love the old hymns, they love the richness and the theology of them, and when they're singing them, there's absolutely nothing going on on the outside, right? They're not passionate, they're very stoic, but they're letting it wash over them as they take it in. And then others of us are very expressive in worship, right? We got our hands up, we're swinging, you know, and sometimes the two groups can look down on the other, like, can you believe those guys who are showing no passion whatsoever? How can you worship God with such a, you know? And And these guys are looking over there going, look at those weirdos. You know, they're like spinning and stuff like that. And we can start judging each other based on something that's not actually in Scripture. It's something that we've added into it. And it makes us feel better about ourselves and look down on others. We do this all with stuff that isn't actually in the Bible. We add stuff in. I think we got to be so careful, me included. It's just a warning to all of us. He goes, Jesus goes, that's a part of that outside in thing don't be like that in verse 13 I love this he goes but the tax collector stood at a distance now tax collectors you may know you probably do these are the lowest people hated tax collectors they hated tax collectors why I listed out four reasons one no one likes to pay money to the government period Right? I mean, everyone's scared to laugh. You're like, are there IRS agents in? No one likes to pay money to the government. That's the first reason. They're like, tax collectors, ugh. you know, like nobody likes it. But especially a government as oppressive as Rome, right? These are guys that just like, uh, they're getting paid money to be bad, you know? And so nobody likes the tax collectors who would retrieve those taxes that go to Rome. Second, the tax collectors in the Bible were Jews who worked for the hated Romans. These guys are betrayers. They're turncoats. They turned their back on their fellow Jews to exploit their fellow Jews and work for the enemy. They hated these guys. Point the, The third reason is common knowledge that tax collectors cheated the people that they collected taxes from. If if Rome tells me that I got to get 20 bucks from Luke, and I'm like, you know what? I could probably make 30 off of this. I'm like, Luke, uh, uh, Rome needs 50 bucks from you, right? And he's like, what? I thought I only owed 20. I have the power as a tax collector to go, don't question Rome. Give me 50 bucks. You know, he gives me 50 bucks. I put 30 in my pocket and give the 20 to Rome. And Rome didn't care. They're like, that's fine. As long as we get our 20. So these guys were... Uh, blatantly cheating people out of money, and that leads to the fourth reason that they hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were generally doing really well; they were making bank, and the rest of the people were scraping to get by. And because they're being exploited, so there's all these. Re- Jesus takes this weasel of a person, this ter- this enemy, and he makes him the example. In my kingdom. These guys are close to God. Why? Let's look. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a short prayer. It's even shorter in the Greek. And it's actually in in opposition or difference to the prayer of the Pharisee. The, pra- the prayer of the Pharisee is not a good prayer. I mean, he's he's the subject of the prayer, but it's two verses less. It's a long prayer. The the tax collector is just like, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It's a short prayer. And it says that he beats his breast. He and it's not just a one-time like striking his breast. The the tense of the verb here is like he is pounding breast his breast as if to say this stupid old wicked heart. There is something wrong with me, and there is. That's the problem of the old covenant. That's the problem of this old kingdom. See, the outside in approach says if I can put some fences around my heart, then maybe I could fence out sin and keep my heart pure. And that's the whole Old Testament is people trying to live that way, trying to be righteous, trying to give God the one thing he asked from them, obedience, right? And they can't do it. They just keep getting in trouble and in trouble again and in trouble again and in trouble again. And by the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah cries out to God in this moment of desperation. He goes, the heart is deceitful above of all things. Who can understand it? He goes, it's the heart that's the problem. I can't fence out sin. The sin's in there. And God goes in Ezekiel chapter 31, he goes, oh, I know. I'm actually going to give you a new heart. You're right. That's the problem. You need a new heart i will give you a new heart ezekiel 36 26 and a new spirit i'll put within you i'll remove that dead old gross heart and i'm going to give you a new heart of flesh and in this new kingdom jesus says you're going to have access to that new heart that's what jesus died for was to close out that old kingdom that old covenant when god raised him back to life The New Testament authors never speak of Jesus raising himself or resurrecting. It's always passive. God is performing the action. God raised Jesus back to life as proof that the check he wrote Friday for your freedom cleared. He stamps it cleared and Jesus offers you uh, admission into his new kingdom and a new heart. The first thing that you have to do is admit I'm broken I'm flawed that's what we see here in this in this tax collector he goes God have mercy on me and your translation says a sinner but it actually was so interesting doesn't sound great in the English so they've chosen to not translate it this way it actually says the sinner so interesting a very subtle thing there's actually a definite article there which means The sinner, which means in this tax collector's mind, he wasn't comparing himself to anybody else. He's not saying a sinner among a bunch of sinners, right? He's going, even if no one else has ever sinned, I'm the sinner and the chief sinner. He's not comparing himself. Comparing yourself is a a characteristic of that old kingdom, right? You've always got to one-up the person next to you. It's a competition thing you got to compare. you got to look to the left and the right and make sure that you're doing better than the other person so that you can get into the kingdom. And Jesus goes, in my kingdom, there's no comparison. It's me and you. And this guy goes, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. Even if nobody else sinned, I am the sinner in this story. And Jesus goes, that's what's required for admittance into my kingdom. He says, verse 14, I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home, and there's a beautiful word there, justified, justified before God, which is all we really want, right, to know that we're enough, to be connected to our creator, to be approved of, that's what that means, he goes home justified, and it's so interesting to me, in scripture, the times that Jesus describes salvation, we like to say, for God so loved the world. You know, Jesus said that one time to a dude named Nicodemus, and so we've come up with this catchphrase when people are like, how do you get saved? And you're like, believe in Jesus. Well, he said that one time to a dude named Nicodemus. He also told a rich young ruler, he's like, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, right? We don't highlight that one, <laughs> because we don't want to get rid of our stuff, right? There's another time with Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus is like, anybody I cheated from, I'm going to give back 10 times what I took from them. And Jesus smacks the table and goes, today salvation has come to this house. And you're like, okay, so wait, is it giving back, is it what you say you're going to do? Or is it what you... Do, there's this other story where some guys break into a house where Jesus is teaching and it's too crowded to get in there and they got a paralyzed friend. And so they rip off the dude's roof and they lower him in with a rope. And Jesus goes, oh, the faith of your friends has forgiven your sins. Wait, so is it the faith of your friends that saves you? Is it what you say you're going to do that saves you? Is it what you actually do or is it belief? And I think the reason that Jesus is so ambiguous sometimes with all these different definitions of how to be saved is what he's trying to reveal to us is it's none of those things. It's a matter of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. And the, what happens here with this tax class, he goes home justified because he goes God I can't do anything to contribute to my salvation I'm not going to just say that I'm broken I'm going to walk away Like I, I, I need your help I surrender we talk about the sinner's <laughs> prayer and that makes me nervous because I go I don't see that in here I see a change of the heart I think Jesus is all the time saying, hey, you gotta do something. Your heart has to change. You gotta turn in that old heart and accept what I've done for you. Here's the point. Access into Jesus' kingdom begins with acceptance of the fact that we don't belong there. Remember, he tells this story as an illustration to people who think they do belong there. And he goes, oh, that's the one disqualifier. Nobody belongs there. I don't. For many of us, that's hard to admit. Did you know that your sins have personally offended God? Not our sins. My sins. My personal sins have personally offended God. I think we have to wrestle with that. We have to admit it. We have to surrender ourselves and go, God, I, I messed up. And when we do that, then we're granted access into this new kingdom. That's what he says in verse 14. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You have to feel the guilt. You have to feel the shame. You have to feel the weight of your own unworthiness. You have to know that you don't belong. In a word, humility. Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, all say what Jesus says here, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I used to think, I used to think like, oh, okay, if you're proud, if you're like, oh, I can do this by myself, I can figure this out on my own, then God wasn't going to help you out. He was just going to sort of ignore you, right? That he was passive towards you. And that's not actually what it says. It says he opposes the proud. Like, if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, if you're trying to do it in your own strength, if you're trying to man up and be better than the people around you, then you've actually put yourself on that line of scrimmage against God. When you look up from that line, you're lining up in formation with the football players. You look up, and it's God on the other side of that line. That's a bad place to be. You've put yourself in direct opposition against the God of the universe. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we lower ourselves, when we go, God, I can't contribute anything to my salvation, he goes, oh, I can work with that. In this new kingdom that Jesus is building, the weight of guilt and shame and unworthiness must be experienced once. You have to feel it once. It's required for admittance, but the power of guilt and shame ends at the moment of exposure and results in humility. That guilt and that shame and that unworthiness is true, and it must be felt once. It's exposed. You release it. It is nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. You paid that price for me. I do not deserve this. I lower myself. And this, Jesus says, is justification. This man leaves justified. Connected to God. In Jesus' new kingdom, none are stronger than the humble. The ones who admit, I can't do it. And, None are weaker than the proud, the ones who try. Self-righteousness has no place here. Pride has no place here. We are all equally undeserving. There's a place in the darkness that I used to cling to that presses harsh hope against time. In the absence of martyrs, there's a presence of thieves who only want to rob me blind. They steal away any sense of peace. Though I'm a king, I'm a king on my knees. And I know they are wrong when they say that I'm strong and the darkness covers me. But turn on the light and reveal all your glory. I am not afraid. To bear all my weakness, knowing in meekness I have a kingdom to gain where there is peace and love in the light. I am not ashamed to let your light shine bright in my life. There's ghosts from my past who've owned more of my soul than I thought I had given away. They linger in closets and under my bed and in pictures less proudly displayed. A great fool in my life I have been have squandered till pallid and thin hung my head in shame and refused to take blame for the darkness I know I've let win. But turn on the light and reveal all the glory. I am not ashamed to bear all my weakness knowing in meekness I have a kingdom to gain where there is peace and love in the light. I am not afraid to let your light shine bright in my life. I've never been much for the bearing of souls in the presence of any man. I'd rather keep to myself all safe and secure in the arms of a sinner I am. Could it be that my worth should depend on the crimson-stained grace on a hand? And like a lamp on a hill, Lord, I pray in your will to reveal all of you that I can. So turn on the light and reveal all the glory I am not afraid to let your light shine bright in my life. To bear all my weakness, knowing in meekness I have a kingdom to gain. Where there's peace and love in your light, I am not ashamed to let your light shine bright in my life. What Jesus does in this new kingdom, he gives you a new heart. One that requires admitting defeat. Admitting weakness, shame and guilt has to be felt once. It is nailed to the cross. That shame and that guilt is about the past now. Conviction is about the future. Shame and guilt's about the past. Conviction is about the future. And as you walk with him, you become more like him. He puts his heart inside of you. You don't have to become more like him first. As you walk with him, you become more like him. And it starts with admitting, I can't do it. This tax collector goes away justified because he admit he's like, I'm far from you. I'm broken, I'm flawed, and I get reconnected to my creator. I get my value and my meaning from him again because of what Jesus did on the cross. So, some of you guys, you might be in here and you're wrestling with shame and guilt. This teaching, this parable should be an encouragement to you. you got to let that go. you were supposed to feel that once. That's about your past. It's nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. Some of us are trying to earn our favor with God, comparing ourselves to others this outside in approach. We need to surrender that one, close it out, man, and live from the inside out. Lord Jesus, thank you for this teaching. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the unlimited parallels and power and meaning that we see in it. And Lord Jesus, no matter where we are in this room, we can connect to what you say here. If we're if we're trying to attain our value with you and our own power, may we surrender that today. If we're wrestling with guilt and shame over the past, may we surrender that today. If we're plugging into something, some fickle thing, some empty thing for our meaning and our value, God, would we Would we realize today that that's never going to give us what we need? That we are meant to be plugged into you, and sin ruined that, but Jesus came and defeated sin. Lord Jesus, as we sing in just a moment, no matter where we are or were coming in here, may the song we sing today be a song of freedom. Freedom from that outside-in approach as we walk into a new kingdom with an inside-out approach, the new hearts that you've given us in the blood of your son and the new life that he offers. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.